Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. This week is the start of a new study that I'm really excited about, where we're going to be spending roughly eight episodes unpacking the book of Job. Before we dive into this opening episode, though, I don't want you to miss out on the opportunity to actually take me up on the invitation to return to the Word. I know how hard it can be to get into the scriptures, especially a book like Job. So that's why I've designed a full passage-by-passage companion study that's going to walk you through the texts of Job as well as offer space for prayer and personal reflection. So the study is available for purchase on our website, www.burningwordpodcast.com. And if you download it, we'd love to have you join our Facebook group to post any questions or interact with us as we go along. Additionally, each episode is going to culminate in what I guess you could describe as a therapeutic exercise. These are basically intensive, guided reflections that are going to invite you not only to study the book of Job, but actually journey along with him. If you've walked through any form of suffering, or if you know someone who currently is in grief, I would highly encourage you to go to our website to check out the study and to follow along. So without further ado, let's now turn to the book of Job as we ask, where is God in my suffering? So I wanted to kick off the study of Job with a question that has haunted all of human existence. Where is God in my suffering? I realize it's a heavy question. This is going to be a heavy study. But I wonder as we begin, what comes to mind for you when you think of suffering? Obviously, there's a million ways we could explore the suffering humanity has endured. From genocides to slavery, from innocent victims to systemic abuses. Our world is full of suffering. But it's important to note that the question is not abstracted. It's not where is God in suffering, but where is God in my suffering? Those losses large and small that have defined my existence. The ways in which my soul and body are scarred. This is where Job will challenge us in this study. His suffering invites our suffering. We cannot remain detached from Job's story. We must enter into it so that we too might examine our scars. One of the most powerful ways I've encountered suffering was a video game called That Dragon Cancer. Now I know that might be unexpected, but back in 2014, Ryan and Amy Green, both visual artists, lost their son to a long, slow struggle with cancer. The two found their only relief came in capturing the journey in a two-hour, scene-by-scene immersion, where we, the player, were invited to care for their slowly dying son. One scene you're rocking him as a crying infant, trying anything to calm him. Eventually, your character begins to cry out to God. In another scene, you journey on this boat through a sea of letters, and each one, when you select it, reads aloud its words. Sometimes they're compassionate, sometimes they're senseless. The most heartbreaking scene, however, takes place when you find yourself underwater. As a character, you see the light overhead, but your screen is shaking and you can tell you're suffocating 
that you can't last much longer. You keep trying to swim up to the surface, but this invisible force seems to be holding you back. You're trapped under the surface. Nothing is working. It's only when you realize that you need to turn around and swim down, swim deeper, that the game allows you to move on. Job invites us into these very terrors of suffering. We are trapped underwater by the forces of our grief. No words can salvage that which has been broken. Friends hold no comfort as they preach systems of salvation, and we are left crying out to a God we can't seem to find. This is why Job must ask our question, where is God in my suffering? It holds the urgency of one who is drowning underwater in a sea of suffering. It is the courage of one who stops pressing for the surface and instead turns and decides to swim further down. Yet for any who have walked by faith as Job has, this question is made more difficult, not less, by our previous religion. Before our suffering, we always seem to know where to find God. He was in our prayers, our hymnals, our Sunday worship service. He was there in the steady rhythms of our answers if anyone questioned us about our faith. But suffering has disrupted the easy answers we used to trust in. This is the crisis point of faith for any who suffers. Their old answers aren't working, but whenever they try to talk to someone about it, they tend instead to receive this defense of God's systems rather than a careful examination of their pain. So if we're going to ask, where is God in my suffering? I first need to cover some ground around why this question is so difficult to ask in religious settings and why so many well-intentioned, faithful friends just don't know how to hold that question with us. So when you take a look at God and the question of suffering, there tends to be two approaches about how best to answer the question, where is God in my suffering? So let's talk about the first. The first approach is a defense approach. This is often called a theodicy, which quite literally means a God defense. In a theodicy, someone, who is often very intelligent, will offer rigorous, systematic reasons why God can be good and still allow suffering in the world. So one of the great examples comes in the year 1710 by a man named Gottfried Leibniz. Unless you've ever studied advanced mathematics, you probably haven't heard of Leibniz, but he was a huge deal. The only reason he's outshone in our textbooks is that Isaac Newton happened to be working at the same time on mathematics and outshone him just a little bit. But Leibniz was brilliant. He worked on advanced theories of calculus, developed the first mechanical calculator, and would advance the binary number system that is the basis for our modern-day digital computing. Yet somehow, in his spare time, Leibniz would also contemplate God and the reasons behind human suffering. So in 1710, Leibniz would publish a book straightforwardly titled The Odyssey that would offer his account of where God is in human suffering. And man, did this book get the European intellectual world buzzing. His premise in Theodicy was simple. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. God would not choose to create an imperfect world if a better world could possibly exist. Therefore, though we see imperfections, logically speaking, this must be the best possible world God could have created 
because God is powerful and all-knowing enough to have created it. Boom. There it is. It's a compelling theory. Game, set, match. Many of Leibniz's supporters thought that this was it. This was the answer to human suffering we'd all been waiting for. It's known today as the best possible world hypothesis. And it essentially tries to answer that though suffering does indeed occur, the way we can all sit back with confidence and assurance is that God created the best possible container for all of it to exist together. Two major problems would arise for the confident theodicy approach Leibniz proposed. One would come just a few years later in Europe in what is known today as the Seven-Year War. All five major European powers of Leibniz's day, who, interestingly enough, claimed to be Christian, would ruthlessly slaughter each other for a seven-year period over the expanse of small stretches of land. To many, this did not seem like a best possible world outcome. The second problem to Leibniz's approach would arise in the year 1755. This massive earthquake would hit the Roman Catholic city of Lisbon, and in the course of just one day, not only would the earthquake devastate most of the buildings, but a tsunami that was a kickback of the earthquake's effects would roll through the town, drowning thousands upon thousands of its population. The worst part of it all was that this tsunami hurricane disaster just happened to fall on November 1st, the Feast of All Saints, where all of the city of Lisbon had gathered to worship God. By this point, one man in particular, known simply as Voltaire, had had enough. He just couldn't accept the first approach, the theodicy approach, that offered neat and tidy answers to the question, where is God in my suffering? Yet, brilliantly, rather than try to tear Leibniz down, Voltaire would simply write a story known as Candid. This is, I believe, an example of the second approach of how to answer the question, where is God in my suffering? I'm going to call it the Candid approach. Instead of attempting to offer answers, Voltaire takes the reader on a journey with the sufferer. In the story, you follow Candid, who for unexplainable reasons would experience suffering in his own life and then proceed on his journey to meet person after person who also was suffering inexplicably. Candid would meet and hear the story of women who were raped or who were falsely accused before the Inquisition, children who were disfigured through accidents at birth, Slaves who, through no fault of their own, were stolen from their homes and forced to serve their masters. Voltaire doesn't even have to say it. He just over and over lets you, the reader, ponder, why? Why would this happen? How could this be the best possible world? Where is God in all this suffering? Now here's what I find interesting. The Bible does not offer us a theodicy. At no point does the Bible follow Leibniz in detailing a clear, logical account of how to explain such unimaginable suffering that occurs in the world. But interestingly, the Bible does offer a candid approach in the story of Job. In it, the book will probe, search, question, and ultimately focus less on answers and more on the sufferer themselves. As we sit in the anguish of Job, we're invited to search with him the questions he seeks. How could this have happened? 
Why would God whom I serve allow this to take place? Where is God in all of this suffering? Distinctly, however, unlike Voltaire's Candid, in the book of Job, God will eventually speak. And it is precisely that encounter between God and Job that I, as a sufferer, so desperately need. So here's where this study is going to go. Each week, we're going to explore a stop along the road of suffering as we try to ask, where is God in my suffering? Each week, we'll cover a chunk of passages that I'll do my best to read quite a bit of, though sometimes we'll move more quickly than others, and each week will culminate with a practical step, a practice that we can take as a sufferer to journey with Job in seeking an encounter with God. Theodicies aren't bad. Sometimes they can really help. But I think our culture is longing more and more for candid approaches to God and suffering, ones that simply sit with the sufferer, that invites honest questions, and that looks less for answers and more for an encounter with the living God. So, without further ado, let's begin by looking at the book of Job. This is going to come from Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. I'm going to read it out loud, and then we'll talk about the passages as we go. So here we go. Job 1, 1 to 6. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may have been that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Okay, let's unpack this introduction to Job a little bit more. We're told that Job came from Uz and that he was the greatest man of the East. Now, if I'm an ancient reader, my mind notes that Job is not an Israelite, and yet, interestingly, that he's from the East. Now, when I think of East, my mind immediately goes Adam and Eve, John Steinbeck, East of Eden. In fact, many commentators note that it's likely there's an Eden and creation reference that's going to linger over our introduction to Job. Job, we're told, after all, is blameless and upright. These are Eden ideas. The word blameless in Hebrew, tam, is derived from the word tamim, which literally means to complete or be perfect or whole. This pairs well with the list of Job's possessions that were given. You may have noticed a lot of numbers being thrown around. Seven sons and three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys. All these pairings, when added together, form a ten, a highly important number of wholeness and perfection in Hebrew thinking. As if his perfect possessions weren't enough, though, we get this final funny snapshot into Job's perfect faith. His children would all gather on birthdays, literally during their day, uh, throughout the year, and Yet even when they celebrated, Job would be offering these burnt offerings on their behalf, just to be safe. I mean, the picture here is incredible. It's this family surrounded by possessions, gathered in continual celebration, and yet committed to ongoing worship. It all sounds great, almost too great. 
You know, I can't help but think, if we were paralleling this to today, that to the ancient world, this snippet of Job's life would have sounded a lot like his Facebook feed. This is the beautifully crafted image of the smiling family, sitting in a beautiful home, gathered around the table. And as we look at this snippet, we feel that hunger pang that comes in our stomach whenever we're looking through an Instagram feed. It's almost like we feel the sense as we look at Job's life. I wonder how much better my life would be if only I had that, or if only I could live up to that. If we're being honest, each of us has a Job picture in our minds, a picture of what it would look like to return to Eden and live a whole and perfect life. Yet for any who post such images... We know that the Eden-like state of our carefully crafted lives can only last so long. So let's go back to the scriptures and look at the next scene. This is coming from Job 1, 6-12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so a little bit of context here. It was common in the ancient world to picture the deities gathered around a heavenly throne, where attendants, either gods or supernatural beings, would attend to the main god. So, for instance, you have a picture of this that you can summon easily, and that's the Greeks who would always picture Zeus seated on his throne on Mount Olympus, and he would always be surrounded by those deities and demigods who were attending him. In nearby Mesopotamia, there was a belief that such a divine assembly would take place once a year, on New Year's Day, so that you would assess the year that had passed, and the gods would then, together, decide the destinies of nations and people for the year ahead. So what's happening here? God has assembled this divine court, and there would be a sense to the ancient audience that the nations and great leaders would now be considered by God. Up to the throne approaches one called Satan. Now, when we think of Satan, we obviously think of the devil and the pitchfork, but at this point in the Bible, there hasn't been much described of Satan yet. Instead, here, all we're really given is his name, which in the Hebrew is Hasatan, the accuser. And we're told his row is literally to go to and fro, walking up and down the earth. Clearly, this is still the crafty one who will later tempt Jesus and who earlier tempted Eve. It is far more helpful here to picture an investigator, really even more a prosecutor, one who's been summoned before the court to point out the humans for God to judge. Here is where the book of Job begins to wade into tricky theological waters that most theologians and pastors would like to avoid. It is not Satan, but the Lord who asks first, Have you considered my servant Job? Job is singled out. He's elevated above the rest. 
There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Those are the Lord's words in verse 8. There's this part of me that's almost devastated on Job's behalf. It's like I want to cry out, no, don't do it. Leave Job alone. Choose someone else. Yet another part of me is struck that on some level, it's almost as if God is moved by Job's devotion. Almost like God is proud of him, that that Job represents for God all that he longs for humanity to be. Just this picture of wholeness and goodness and beauty and worship taking place in the rich rhythms of community and family life. Perhaps there's even this confidence from God here in Job. For to God, who other than Job could bear the scrutiny of the accuser? I mean, if Job can't do it, who would be better off to put under Satan's gaze? Satan won't be caught off guard that easily, however. He offers a quick reply. Does Job fear God for no reason? This is no simple question. We, of course, assumed upon our first reading that Job is straightforwardly blameless and pure in his motives. But Satan knows better. Motives are a notoriously tricky thing to define in court. As a human being, I must admit that even my best intentions are often tinged by self-interest. So Satan's first prosecutor move is to question Job's motives. Are Job's motives pure? He then presses into his second move, saying, God, haven't you put a hedge around him? Satan's point is that Job has been protected. Surely it's easier to be blameless and worship God when you haven't been severely strained, when family, wealth, and success have come easily and naturally to you. So Job challenges, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. If Job blesses God when he's blessed, surely the accuser claims he will correspondingly curse God when cursed himself. If you're starting to squirm at this point, you're reading Job correctly. In fact, the book of Job has boldly invited us into this inner chamber of God that we've never seen before. It's offered us a front row seat to ponder a daring scene. We know that the serpent had questioned Eve about God, but now Satan is questioning God about Eve, about all of humanity. It's like he's subtly asking God with his prosecution, are you truly worthy? Of worship on your own? Or isn't all of humanity just worshiping you because you're just helping them out? This is a heavy question, and we're meant to feel its weight. Surely, as a Christian, a full answer to this question will need to wait on the answer of Christ. But for now, it's worth noting that God is going to make an interesting bet. He places his hopes on humanity specifically on Job, as the agent he believes is capable of vindicating a true love of God, even as all the blessings of his life are taken away. This scene is key to hold as we move through the story of Job. It's a tension that will be held through the whole drama all the way to the end. God will respond with words that should fill us with dread. He says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. If we were privy to such a scene, we surely would weep. Terror is about to unfold. Let me read the next passage. This is Job 1, 13 to 19. Now there was a day 
when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job, who said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them, and took them, and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another, who said, The fire of God fell from heaven, and burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another, who said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another, who said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. As we look at this passage, my heart aches. I want to weep. I mean, the first messenger comes, and in an instant, all of Job's agricultural assets are gone. Another messenger, another instant, and suddenly, all of Job's pastoral assets are gone. Again, with just this relentless intensity, a third messenger comes and we're told all of his camels, all of the industry, all of the work that he had spent his whole life building, all of it is gone. However, it's the last blow that breaks your heart. It is the great wind of suffering. I'm going to read that verse again from verse 19. It says, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. Yes, this is the same wind we were told that hovered as the Spirit of God over creation. Yes, this is the same wind that God will appear with later in a whirlwind. We're not told that God caused the wind, but it is the wind of God, and it will require the whirlwind of God to redeem what the wind of God has taken. There's this scene in the novel, Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. Jaber is just a regular man whose life observes the town he lives in. And we're invited with him really into this simple reflection on the intimate rhythms of everyday life. But at one point, late in the story, Jaber will recount the death of Liddy, the five-year-old daughter of Maddie, the woman whom Jaber has loved the whole story from afar. Liddy, we're told, is beautiful and young, and she's dancing and chatting away to her mother, before suddenly, as she's dancing out onto the road, her mother will turn, only to see her hit by an oncoming car. This is how Jaber recalls it. Knowing in that instant that what she saw could never be undone, but never could be unknown to her ever again in her life, she cried out and she gathered Liddy into her arms. This truly is the moment in Job's life that not only could never be undone, but that you could never unknow again. It is the weight of paradise lost. It is innocence that will never be regained. It is the literal and figurative collapse of one's whole world, and life will never be the same again. Archibald MacLeish 
put together a Pulitzer Prize winning play on the book of Job titled JB. And then he has this line, this devastating line, but it's important to hold here. JB says, there's always someone playing Job. I know, I know, I know. I've seen him. Job is everywhere we go. Many of us have known the pain of Job. Perhaps you have known the pain of Job. His great cry echoes out across time and resounds with our own. Yet somehow Job will endure. Here's verses 20 to 22. They say, Job then arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. What we discover here is that Job's faith was not for nothing. In the greatest test, his soul had been prepared and integrity to respond. Verse 21 says, He fell to the ground and worshipped. I mean, these words come from his lips. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. There is something to be said of God's faith in humanity. There is something to be said of our genuine faith in God. Many have endured the trial of suffering and found that worship can still sing on their lips. But I would be quick to add, this is not the final word of Job. In fact, if you in your present pain can't bear what feels like a very non-candid response, just hang on. Job is going to take us deeper than this first confession into the heart of his pain, and he is going to face what feels like unavoidable questions of God. Let's continue, though, into the next scene. This now is in Job chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So the camera pans brutally back to heaven after the devastation that's just unfolded. The scene repeats itself almost verbatim at the start. Satan appears. We're told where he's been. The Lord replies, Have you considered Job? Yet this second pass comes with a twist in what's added to verse 3. The Lord says, He, Job, still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. This is a really fascinating verse. In fact, I would say this verse, if you think hard and long enough about it, should keep you up at night. The first concern here for the theologian is that this verse implies God was incited by Satan. 
suggesting that Satan somehow goaded or perhaps even tricked God into testing Job. As early as the Septuagint, translators have tried to soften this verb. The Septuagint's going to render it, you have told me, Satan, instead of you incited me. The Talmud here, I think, is even better, though. The rabbis are going to say in one of their typically insightful lines that they simply must throw up their hands and declare, were it not written in the Bible, it would be impossible to say. I tend to agree with the rabbis here. What else can we say? God, it appears, was at the very least persuaded by Satan to test Job. Yet another serious concern remains about this verse. The end of the verse says that the trial of Job took place for no reason. For no reason. For no reason this suffering took place. For no reason Job's children were slaughtered. This verse is incredibly challenging. Now, you could, of course, try to solve it. Some have suggested that maybe Job was tested for no reason means that Job did not give a cause, did not give a reason for his testing. Essentially, Job didn't do anything wrong. It was Satan who incited it. So Satan's to blame, not Job. I think that's certainly a sense given here. But I think we're avoiding something that could actually offer us a lot of comfort when it comes to our suffering. This verse, interestingly, is not interested in assigning blame. In fact, its refusal to allow us to claim God had some glorious ulterior motive for testing Job is precisely the kind of freedom the sufferer needs to know that sometimes suffering takes place for no reason. For no reason did this happen. It occurred. It was incited. Now how will Job respond? I realize this kind of assertion can seem terrifying to some. Others may think that I'm moving away from God's sovereignty here when that's not my goal. The Bible confidently asserts God's sovereignty and I do the same. But I'm comforted here that the Bible will give space to acknowledge that some suffering does in fact take place for no reason. It's not caused by God. It's not intended with some ulterior motive. This wasn't all just some grand test to somehow make Job a more pious person. Instead, some suffering takes place for no reason. How else do we explain a man whose children have just been killed? How else do we explain a child who is raped by a family member? How else do we explain horrible natural disasters, diseases, plagues, miscarriages, and stillbirths? Can God redeem any evil? Yes. Does God have a plan and rule sovereignly over the world? Yes. Is it possible that all Job experienced was simply a test meant to prove his character and solidify his faith as a lesson demonstrating Lebanon's best possible world theory? Sure. The Bible is complicated to grasp on these issues, but I see here biblical weight being given to a story where God comforts us by saying you don't always have to force a reason on every suffering as if that will somehow magically redeem it. Some of us need to know that the horrendous tragedies that mark our lives were not some primordially planned test of refinement. 
but that they happened for no reason and that God is now working diligently to redeem them. Incredibly, the scene is not yet finished. Satan throws another gauntlet down before the Lord. He'll say, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand, touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. I think it's worth noting here that Satan thinks the external bodily suffering of Job will cause far more agony than the internal emotional suffering of the loss of his children. Such thinking demonstrates more about Satan's naivety than his perpetual boast of insight. However, any of us who have experienced ongoing bodily suffering would note that there is something to be said about the completeness and distorting power that bodily pain has over the mind. When you're suffering bodily, it is ever-present to you. Even small discomfort will distract and agitate. Extreme bodily pain consumes us. So with that in mind, we turn to the next two verses. This is verse 7 to 8. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Here we find the compounding effect of both inner emotional loss and external bodily pain. Job is covered with loathsome sores. And we're told that they're from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. His body now reflects the all-consuming nature of his grief. There's something poetically right about that. He wears on his body the loss that has consumed his inner world. Now, that final verse, verse 8, gets me every time I read it. And he, Job, took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. So far, Job has spoken only once, and he was brilliantly courageous with his words. Now, however, Job has no words. Instead, we're told that all Job has left is a broken piece of pottery reflecting his broken life. As he sits speechless in his suffering, his body decaying, his only comfort is to scrape this broken shard against his broken wounds. Job finds solace in connection with that which is no longer whole or complete. When we too are broken, we find ourselves drawn to broken things as the discarded bits and pieces of life become like a subsequent home for one whose life is shattered and torn. The end of chapter 2, where this episode will end, we're told that Job is now sitting in the ashes. Job will remain here the rest of the book. This ash heap, or quite literally the dung heap in the Septuagint, was probably a designated area outside of town where society consigned the rejected and broken pieces of life to be cast aside and destroyed. Inevitably, one who suffers great loss finds themselves on the ash heap. It becomes impossible when life breaks down to maintain the necessary appearances society requires. Just as Job's external body now reflects his inner torment of pain, so too the ash heap helpfully reflects the literal image of one who has burned out in life. So how does this opening narrative end? 
I'm going to read through the end of chapter 2, verses 9 to 13. Then Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temnite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. How will we respond to the ash heap? That's the question of this first episode. Job's wife will offer a candid reply. Curse God and die. It's somewhat ambiguous whether this statement and her role in the story is one of contempt or an honest offer of comfort. Either way, Job will reject it. He, like us, has a question that will burden him as he sits in silence. Where is God in my suffering? The God who once blessed me has now taken away. Where is God when we find ourselves on the ash heap of human existence? Three friends have also joined Job. A large portion of the book will follow the encounter between them. I'm excited to get there. But before we do, as has often been pointed out, it seems important to the Bible that all four of them will first sit in silence for seven days and seven nights. I think this is the only response to the sufferer. It's the only way we should begin the journey. We cannot stay removed or off to the side. We cannot perch in an ivory tower and speak our answers down into the midst of the suffering and pain. We must make our way to the ashes, and we must sit with the sufferer. Or if we are the sufferer, we must journey ourselves to the ash heap. We cannot rush on. We cannot solve or contend. We must pause our theodicies and simply sit in silence on the ashes. I don't know where you're at in your faith as you listen to this. I don't know how you have suffered. But I do know that God wants to encounter you, that his burning word is for you. So the hope and prayer of this podcast is that you would go with us on a journey. Journey doesn't end here, but instead, this episode begins the invitation. Will you return to the word and see if you might encounter God again? So we have a study available for free on our website, burningwordpodcast.com. The study is going to look at these first two chapters. The study is going to keep moving through the text. And most importantly, the study will give you a practical exercise to begin this journey of sitting on the ash heap in silence and reflecting on your suffering. So if you've been looking for a way to go deeper in your faith, there's no better place to start. This is the heaviness of suffering but this is also the powerful potential of where we must begin if we hope to encounter God. Start 
on the ash heap with Job. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. And until next time, grace and peace. Thank you.